Yeah. Coming to spring. Okay, I think we're ready. Good morning, everyone. Welcome <laughs> to Torah class. Um, and I, let me just uh, begin, and I'll try to remember to do this again with uh, uh, just by saying that yes, we have Torah class next week as well. So you can mark your calendars for next uh, Wednesday morning at 8.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Uh, this morning, the Parsha is Yitro. It is the, uh, the Parsha about the Ten Commandments. And I think what I want to do is make basically three large points about the Parsha, uh, and uh, then we'll see if there are questions or comments about it. Um, so, but first of all, uh, the Ten Commandments play a kind of strange role in Western civilization in general, and in Jewish civilization in particular, in the sense that it is clearly a highlight of the Torah. Um, it's clearly part of the centerpiece of the entire um, story of the Torah, the Exodus. Um, since they never reached the land, the most dramatic thing that happens actually after the Exodus is the receiving of the Ten Commandments. And yet, some of you may have noticed that the Ten Commandments are not in our prayers. The Shiratayam, leaving the sea, uh, going across the sea and singing about it are in the prayers, but the Ten Commandments are not. And the usual explanation of that is that um, early, uh, by the way, we're, we start on right, chapter 18 in the book of Exodus, for those of you who are looking, chapter 18, um, which is the beginning before the Ten Commandments, uh, but we will come to them in chapter 20. The usual explanation is that the, um, the enemies of the Jews or the detractors of the Jews were used to saying that the only thing that came from God were actually the Ten Commandments. Everything else came, everything else was humanly created. And so in order to emphasize the fact that the Ten Commandments not only were not the only thing from God, but were not actually necessarily more important than the rest of the Torah. They literally didn't put it in the prayer book. Um, nonetheless, we do acknowledge its importance. We stand up when we recite it in synagogue. If you're in synagogue this Shabbat, as people read the Ten Commandments, the congregation will rise. And obviously, it is cited a great deal in Jewish literature and discussion and so on, as well as in popular literature, the controversies about posting the Ten Commandments and secular, whether it's secular or religious and so on, uh, are, um, are still, I think, uh, prevalent in American society. Um, so three points about them in general. The first is that the Parsha in which the Ten Commandments are cited is Parshat Yitro. And Yitro is Moses' father-in-law. And Yitro is a priest of Midian. He is not a Jew, which means that the central Parsha of the Torah is named after a non-Jew. First of all, most Parshiot are named after anyone, but some are. There's like Chaye Sara, the life of Sara. Um, 
And, uh, and this one is named after Yitro. And that's a really interesting thing. First of all, it suggests the universality of the Ten Commandments, that you would name it after a non-Jew. Um, and also, uh, it, it, um, it's one more reinforcement, just like the story of creation, that God is the God of all creation, not just the God of the Jews which is a constant, the particularist universalist tension is a constant one in the, the Jewish tradition. Before we get to the Ten Commandments itself, God makes Moses go up and down the mountain many times. Um, it says like in chapter 19, uh, in verse three, and Moses went up, went up to God and then God tells him various things that he's supposed to speak to the children of Israel. And then on seven, it says, Moses came and summoned the elders of the people and all of them answered. And Moses brought back the people's words to the Lord. And then the Lord said to, the Mo to Moses, go back to the people. So he goes back to the people. And then it says in, in uh, 14, Moses came down from the mountain and said to the people, wait on the third day. And then of course, Moses goes back up the mountain. And this constant shuttling back of Moses back and forth to the mountain is by most of the commentators intended to demonstrate these words are not coming from Moses. The fact that he's going back and forth makes Moses appear to be God's gopher, basically. And that's exactly how it's intended to look. Because if Moses went up the mountain and then came down with all these messages, the people might say, well, that was Moses's message. But if he goes back and forth and back and forth, then it, and each time he has a new message from God, then it appears that he's clearly doing God's bidding. Um, so by the time you get to the, uh, to the Ten Commandments itself, there is a sense um, that Moses is doing what God wants him to do. And, and then there is, I should, I, I think I'm going to post this later. I, li I like this so much. In verse 19, it says, And the sound of the shofar, holech v'chozek ma'od, grew louder and louder. And there's a beautiful, um, Israel Leventhal was the rabbi of the Brooklyn Jewish Center. And he had this beautiful comment about this. He said, you know, it's against the laws of physics for a uh, a sound to get louder and louder. Sounds get softer and softer. So what does it mean that the sound of the shofar got louder and louder? He said, because that's the way the Torah has operated through history. It got louder and louder and louder. You would think that something that happened thousands of years ago in a mountain in the middle of the desert over time would get softer and softer and disappear and nobody would pay attention anymore. But in fact, throughout history, it got louder and louder and louder. Um, anyway, so there's thunder and lightning around the mountain. It's clearly intended to be striking and impressive. Um, and Moses goes up to the mountain to receive, well, they don't know that they're going to be the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments. Um, the other thing is that it looks like God only spoke the first two to the entire people before they got terrified. Um, and, uh, and so... Um, uh, you go to chapter 20. All the people are ringed around the mountain. They're not supposed to come up. 
And then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods beside me. Now, I don't know if any of you remember. I don't remember what the name of the movie was. Burt Reynolds once found he tried, he's committing suicide, and he, he swims out to sea, and then he decides he doesn't want to commit suicide. And so he says, you know, God, if you let me come back to shore, I will obey all the Ten Commandments. I won't kill. I won't steal. And then he goes, I'll learn all the Ten Commandments. Um, and, and I think the truth is that if you ask most people, it would not be so easy to recite all the Ten Commandments. Um, and also, by the way, there's a slight variation in the way that Jews and Christians read the Ten Commandments and break them up. Uh, but nonetheless, um, the, uh, the first five are essentially supposed to be, with the fifth being the transitional one, relations between Jews and God or between the people and God. Um, I am the Lord your God, the one against idolatry, the one against swearing false witness, and so on. Those are all relational between God. The fifth one is the one about parents. You should honor your father and your mother. Um, uh, and, and the fifth one is seen by the tradition as the transition between God and human beings because you learn about God from your parents. And and I think that it is true to, I mean, I've, I've tried this psychological experiment. You'll decide if it's true. It may be less true today than it used to be. But I've asked people before how much their conception of God, assuming they have a conception of God, matches their relationship with their father. And there's a really strong alignment in almost everybody that I've asked between their conception of God and their relationship to their father. Because I think throughout most of history, we had a patriarchal world and people thought of God in very male terms. And you sort of, you know, and, and I remember um, in, in my house and probably in some of yours, when I was a little kid, there was a picture of an old man with a beard. And boy, when I thought of God, I thought of that picture. So I think that it's not strange. If you think about your relationship with your father and then you think about the way you think about God, I wonder if you'll find similarities. Um, I think that it's not strange to do so, uh, even though obviously that's, you know, that's not ideal in the Jewish tradition. It just may be psychologically the way we work. Um, but, uh, but after that, and, and the, the, last, the last of the four, is the Shabbat, and which is, again, between human beings and God. And then you come to uh, the command to, uh, to honor your father and mother. And the other thing that is interesting about honoring your father and mother is it's the only one that gives you a rationale slash reward. Because it just says, it says, thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Remember the Sabbath day. But then it says, honor your father and mother that you may long endure on the land that the Lord your God is assigning you. Which it doesn't say about any other. And, and again, you can have lots and lots of theories about this. Um, I would say at least one plausible theory that several commentators have talked about is without the family unit, you don't have a stable society. And so this is what allows you 
to continue on the land because without a stable society, you won't succeed, especially in a world in which there are always uh, external enemies. Um, then I have, I have the translation, and it's the right one, thou shalt not murder. It's not thou shalt not kill. Obviously, the Torah doesn't say thou shalt not kill because the Torah has people go to war and, and even has capital punishment. So you can't say that the Torah is against killing per se, but it is against murder. Um, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. And then the last two are you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his male or female slave, his ox or his ass, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, I want to make a point about stealing and a point then, and then I want to talk about coveting. Um, I don't know who first made this observation, but it's a really interesting one, that all of the Ten Commandments can be summarized in thou shalt not steal. Because all of them have to do with taking something that doesn't belong to you. Like, if you don't give God the honor that God is due, then you're taking something from God, you're stealing God's honor. Just like the, the comment in the Talmud that someone who eats without a blessing is a thief. Why? Because you're taking the good that God has given you and you're not giving God the payment, which is a blessing, which is what you're supposed to pay back to God. Um, I was at a dinner where uh, somebody who grew up in the South said, now let us return thanks. And I didn't know what he meant at first. And I said, what is return thanks? And he said, you know, grace before the meal. And I said, oh, what a, what a nice phrase. That's exactly like, that is in some ways very much like what I'm, uh, what the Jewish tradition talks about here. Um, and so stealing in some ways is a summary of everything that we're not supposed to do um, in, in this world. Uh, and if you look at all the other commandments, they're in some ways stealing. Bearing false witness is in some ways stealing. Um, it's even Genevat Da'at, which is uh, a category of Jewish law called stealing one's thoughts. Genevat Da'at is a really interesting category that is constantly violated. Um, you're not supposed to, I mean, according to, to Jewish law, you're not supposed to go into a store and ask somebody the price of something if you have no intention of buying it because you're misleading them. You're stealing their thoughts. That may not be true in big department stores, right? But remember, we, this was true in the Shuk, when you would go into the Shuk and you would say, how much is this? You are obviously, unless you said, I'm really not sure if I'm gonna buy it, I just wanna know how much this is and this is. But if you go and say, well, tell me how much that is, you're obviously suggesting. And then if you go into the next store and you comparison shop and you make, that's Genevatat. Um, it's done all the time, but still, you're not supposed to. Uh, okay, so, and adultery clearly is stealing that which is not yours. Um, murder is stealing that which is not yours. It's not your life to take. Uh, bearing false witness is almost always, we're talking about a court, and you're taking something, someone's liberty, someone something that's not yours to take. Uh, and then finally, coveting. So, Coveting is the most difficult commandment to explain because it legislates an emotion. You're not supposed to want something. And it's really hard to explain to people 
how to not want or to command someone not to want something because wanting is involuntary, right? You can, um, you can not want to want something, but that's not the same as not wanting something, you know? Uh, you can say, gee, I really wish I wasn't envious of that person's car, but that doesn't mean that because you really wish it, you won't be envious of that person's car because we can't control what we want. Um, at least we don't think so. So I have two, I mean, and I'd be curious if you have others, but I have two plausible explanations of this commandment. Uh, one is Ibn Ezra's. Um, Ibn Ezra says, who was a medieval commentator, he said, the peasant covets the most beautiful girl in the village, but he doesn't covet the queen because the queen is so far beyond the possibility that he could ever be with her that he doesn't, I mean, he may admire her, but he doesn't covet her. He doesn't think, oh, I'm so jealous of the prince or the king that he has the queen. But he could be jealous of the guy who's married to the prettiest girl in the village because that's actually within the realm of his possibility that he might actually, he said, when you covet something, it's something that you could conceivably have. If you think of other people's possessions as something that you could not conceivably have, you won't covet them. I don't know if it works psychologically, but that's his explanation, okay? The other, one second, the other explanation that I want to suggest to you is based on the difference between the way this is explained in the Hebrew and the English. Because in Hebrew, it's not called the Ten Commandments. It's called Aseret HaDivarim, the Ten Sayings, which is not the same as the Ten Commandments, right? Um, Divarim, just like the Book of Divarim. So if you see this not as a commandment, according to one Hasidic rabbi, um, but a promise, then what the, the Torah is saying is if you follow these other nine commandments, you won't covet. If you live a life according to the Torah, you will discover that you are satisfied and you won't covet anything that someone else has because that's not how you'll be focused in this world. You will be focused internally. And there certainly are people who are internally focused enough that they don't really covet the goods of other people. It just doesn't cross their mind, right? Because they live in a different, they live in a different atmosphere with a different idea in a different way. So you could see the last commandment as, as a promise instead of as a commandment. Okay, um, let me just say, uh, now when we go on, I just wanna finish with chapter 20. All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the blare of the horn, the mountain smoking, and when they saw it, they fell back and stood at a distance. You speak to us, they said to Moses, and we will obey, but let not God speak to us let we, lest we die. And so they didn't want to have direct contact to God. It was too overwhelming and too scary. They wanted Moses to be the intermediary, and then they would listen to Moses. And of course, as we know, part of the problem was that Moses was up there longer than they expected Moses to be. And that gets into the golden calf, but we still have uh, 
a little time to go before we get to, uh, to the golden calf story. Okay, so I'm going to stop there on the Ten Commandments, take questions, comments. Yeah, you, you were going to say. It can be. Coveting can be, I don't want you to have it, I want to have it, or it can just be, I want to have it too. It's usually the first. I want to have it too is ambition. Yeah. Is it also forbidden? Well, it, it, no, ambition is not forbidden because, it, I mean, here coveting is coveting something that someone else has. Because oh, okay. it says your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife. And by the way, you can see how male-oriented this is. It doesn't say your neighbor's wife or husband. Right? It says your neighbor's wife. That's the coveting um, that, uh, that we're talking about, or his ox or his ass, or anything that is your neighbor's. In other words, anything that belongs to you that I want is coveting. Um, and presumably it means if I get it, then you don't have it anymore, presumably. Um, but but it, is, it is true that um, jealousy which is a sort of species of covetousness, is also an engine of progress in a way. Even in the Talmud, it says, kinat sofrim marbe chokhmah, which means the jealousy of scholars increases wisdom. And that makes sense. It's like you meet somebody and you, they're really impressive and you say, I wanna, I wanna be like that or know that or do that. But if you are, you're not taking their knowledge away from them, of course. So it's a different, it's ambition doesn't necessarily knock the other person off their pedestal. It can. Um, sometimes people make a distinction between envy and jealousy. Um, and so maybe, maybe one is just, uh, one is just wanting to be the same as the other, and one is wanting the other one to fall, and they're not the same. That's true, yeah. So he said that, that uh, to him, jealousy always has a sexual connotation, and envy can be other things, like material things. Um, I, I mean, my guess is there's that I don't know. We have to look in the OED and see what it says. But, uh, but my guess is that they're not used strictly enough anymore to always make that distinction, although that could have been the original distinction. Yeah. Doesn't giving thanks. Doesn't coveting prevent you from giving thanks? How so? I, so there, well, I, I don't know that it prevents you because he said coveting is you want something and thanks is being grateful for what you have. So you can be thankful for some things you have and still covet other things you don't have. Um, but, but I think it's probably true that it prevents you from a larger posture of gratitude towards the world to covet. They are in opposition to each other in a great sense. And I would say that that gratitude is kind of the fundamental religious emotion. Um, so, yes, uh, 
even though it's a really hard one, grief also fights against gratitude, right? Um, loss is, about, is, at, is, is at war with gratitude. Uh, gratitude is a hard one sometimes. Um, and, uh, and the idea that, uh, that we should all, that, you know, it, it says in the Talmud that you should bless the bad as you bless the good. And that's a very high level of spiritual development to be able to do that. Because the assumption is, the assumption that Talmud makes is ultimately everything is for the good, ultimately. Or God wouldn't have designed it that way in the world. But that's not, not so easy in practice to get there. Right. Oh, I'm glad you said that. That's, uh, that's absolutely true, which is that one of the explanations that some people offer is that the coveting is like, coveting is the umbrella under which all these other bad things happen. If you didn't covet, you wouldn't kill, steal, commit adultery, all those other, murder, let's say, steal, commit adultery, all those other things. And so it is the final, like, warning how do I observe all these Ten Commandments that you've, or the nine that you've just given me? The way you do it is by learning how not to covet. Because if you don't want those things, you won't do these terrible things. And I do think that probably most of the, maybe all, um, most of the bad things that we do in this world are a function of desire. Right? Desire gone haywire, desire unexamined. Um, so on and so forth. Uh, yeah, to the, well, it certainly is true that the, the, the rabbis especially, they do, um, they, ex they advise both restraint of emotion and elevation of emotion. They do both. They like, they, they, you know, a lot of the rabbinic writing, for example, on sex and jealousy is when you see someone that's beautiful, instead of like pretending they're not beautiful, what you do is you think how much more beautiful is the creator of the world that made this beauty? In other words, you elevate the thought as opposed to try to quash the thought. Um, but, and by the way, as long as we're on the, we're on that, that's, that's, uh, one of my favorite stories about the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidism, is um, someone once asked him, how do I know if somebody's a real Hasid or they're a fake, uh, a real like teacher or a fake teacher? And he said, ask them how to get rid of machshavot ra'ot. Machshavot ra'ot are evil thoughts. And evil thoughts in Hasidic tradition are almost always sexual thoughts. It's not like, you know, I want that guy's car. It's sexual thoughts. And he said... And he said, if they know how to get rid of machshavot ra'ot and they tell you they know how, they're a fraud. Which is a really, so really like, you know, I always thought that was so, that was so human and so good. And so, you know, it's like there's a certain, I, I mean, these are all ideals. Uh, there's nobody who, th this is actually a question whether, you know, how 
elevated do you think people can actually be? I'm deeply suspicious of gurus who have shed their real human like urges, desires, angers, everything. Um, there are always people who claim to be that or whose followers claim that they are that way. Um, but I don't entirely believe it. I just don't. So, however, having said that, are there people who are much more, much farther along the path? Absolutely. No question about it. There are people who, I mean, we know this. I mean, there are people who have demonstrated extraordinary human qualities. I'm thinking like it just pops into my head. Mandela demonstrated extraordinary human qualities that most people couldn't have have demonstrated given what the faith that he and there are many and there are many other examples in uh, in human history so um, yeah there are and there you go it's all the and now next week and we do have class next week is mishpatim which is the elaboration of rules based on these 10 commandments in part and there are some very fascinating um, passages there, and we will examine them next week. Um, but let me just check and see if there are any other questions on the... What's that? You can ask another question, yes, because I have another minute before I have to go to the board meeting. Go. Um. Go ahead. Yitro, yes. Yeah. Moses. Okay. So one is how could Moses marry a non-Jew? And what's the second one? And the second one. It's okay. Okay. So the assumption of the tradition is that she converted, which is always the assumption of the tradition. Yes, absolutely. It should be acceptable in Jews. Well, conversion has a long and tricky history because, yes, there's no question that people convert. Obviously, people convert in the Torah because there weren't enough Jews to marry. And early on, it was the, the religion followed the male for, for the early. I mean, in the Torah, it's clear that it follows the male, not the female. It follows Moses, not, not uh, Zipporah, his wife. Um, that changed in the time of Ezra. It changed in the time of Ezra because, um, in part, there was, there was becoming much more... Inter Judaism was more solidified as Judaism. It wasn't a tribe, it was a people. And intermarriage, you needed a way to... Um, still, there was still conversion, to know that the child was the child of a Jew. So it started to follow the mother as opposed to following the father. Because when it followed the father, when the father was basically, you brought the woman into the tribe. Now, when societies were mixing more with each other in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, you had to know that the child was born of a Jewish mother, so it became a Jewish mother. And conversion in some periods of Jewish history has been applauded and encouraged even no, but actually it started to be, in fact, it says in the Talmud that Rabbi Akiva would go across the sea to make a convert. But then what happened is in the fourth century, Constantine made Christianity the law of the Roman Empire and converting to Judaism came under penalty of death. So Jews stopped converting. And then later, and then later 
they became very suspicious of converts who they thought of in different places at different times as people that came into the tradition to spy on on Jews, and they became a much tighter community, and people were really alien who came from another tradition and wanted to convert, and they suspected their motives at different times. Um, but I will close with this um, before we finish, which is, if you want to see a really beautiful example of Judaism and conversion and discussion in action, look up Maimonides' letter to the convert Obadja. Because what happens is this convert writes Maimonides, the greatest authority in the history of the Jewish people. And he says, I don't feel like I have the right to say um, the God of my fathers because I converted. And that God wasn't the God of my fathers, right? My, the God of my fathers was some pagan God that wasn't. And Maimonides writes back this beautiful letter. And he says to him, you have more of a right to say it than I do because I was born into this, but you actually chose it. And it's really beautiful how Maimonides says this to him. And, and, uh, and that's the, that's the, the non-frightened um, Jewish view. I mean, Judaism has always been enormously enriched by converts. If you look at the Aramaic translation of the Torah, it was done by a man named Unculus, who was a convert. Um, 